0: The Christian Ministry with an Inquiry into the Causes of its Inefficiency by Charles Bridges. Part 3. Causes of Ministerial Inefficiency Connected with Our Personal Character The writer is well aware of the extreme delicacy, consideration, and tenderness which the treatment of this part of his subject requires of him. He can, however, truly state that, though for his personal profit he has diligently observed the ministrations of his brethren, yet the material for a mark which will now be detailed is drawn rather from a painful acquaintance with his own deficiencies and temptations than from a censorious scrutiny of others. And he trusts that it will be remembered that there is a wide difference between exposing the defects of his brethren in the pride of self-gratulation and observing their failures in connection with a deep searching into his own heart, and for the purpose of bringing all into a condensed view for the common good. The important influence, favorable or unfavorable, of our personal habits upon the ministerial work is obvious. The character of the individual must have a prominent part in forming the minister, and therefore the causes that operate in the declension of the Christian life must belong to this department of the subject particulars will now be specified chapter 1 want of entire devotedness of heart to the christian ministry the paragraph first timothy 4:13 to 16 condenses in the smallest compass the most important body of appropriate instruction and encouragement to ministerial devotedness Give thyself wholly to these things, that thy profiting may appear to all. Take heed unto thyself and unto the doctrine. Continue in them, for in doing this thou shalt both save thyself and them that hear thee. The effect of the apostles' resolution to give themselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word exhibited the influence of Christian devotedness upon ministerial success. The great shepherd, indeed, who gave himself for, gave us to the flock. And there is no more responsible thought connected with our work than the obligation of giving ourselves to our people so that they shall be led to prize us as a gift from Christ. Oh, that we might be able to tell them, who belong to Christ and he has given us to you, we owe our whole selves entirely to you, We are your servants for Jesus' sake. We have given ourselves to the work, and we desire to be in it as if there was nothing worth living for besides. It shall form our whole pleasure and delight. We will consecrate our whole time, our whole reading, our whole mind and heart to this service. We cannot suppose it to be less necessary for us than for Archippus, to take heed to the ministry which we have received in the Lord that we fulfill it, or that the apostolical exhortations to unremitted diligence are less applicable to us than to the beloved Timothy. Do the privileges and immunities of our admirable establishment furnish a plea for self-indulgence? Or shall we be satisfied with a routine of outward service, sufficient to justify us in the eyes of our diocesan, while, as respects any painful exercises of self-denial, we are serving the Lord with that which doth cost us nothing. We are to be laborers, not loiterers, in the Lord's vineyard, not doing his work with a reluctant heart, as if we did it not, as if we feared being losers by him, or giving him more than he deserved. Quote, The pastoral dignity is really the condition of a servant. It obliges a man to devote himself entirely to Jesus Christ and to his church. Both the minister and the ministry are only for the church. He who in this state does not apply himself entirely to the service of the church will be treated as a thief and a sacrilegious person. Whoever has not the spirit of his ministry renders all the talents and advantages useless, which he has received to serve the church. A pastor ought to have nothing at heart but the work of God and the salvation of souls. This ought to be his delight, his meat, and his life. End quote. Kenzel. Let us remember that as ministers we are not only, like our fellow Christians, bought with a price, but we are set apart, yea, devoted to this work. We have, therefore, no right to entangle ourselves with the affairs of this life so as to hinder our entire consecration to the church. So strongly was this obligation felt in the primitive age that Cyprian gives the judgment of the church that a presbyter should not entangle himself with the office of an executor. If, however, they unadvisedly made an absolute rule, still the principle was excellent, that the minister's constant employment in spiritual affairs precluded him from giving the necessary attention even to important secular duties. Our responsibilities demand an entire devotedness of spirit to every soul as if it were the sole object of our care. Quote, It ought, therefore, to be our solemn and cheerful determination to refrain from studies, pursuits, and even recreations that may not be made evidently subservient to the grand purpose of our ministry. The Apostle would remind us in our visits, journeys, and common intercourse of life, never to forget not only our Christian, but our ministerial character. All must be stamped with its holiness, all must be a part of a system strictly adhered to, of being constantly learning and waiting the opportunity of imparting what we have learned in the things of God. End quote. Scott. Mr. Cecil used to say that the devil did not care how ministers were employed so that it was not in their proper work. Whether it was hunting or sporting, cards and assemblies, writing notes upon the classics or politics, it was all one to him. Each might please his own taste. In contrast to this mind, how manly was Nehemiah's repeated answer to his subtle enemies when they would have diverted him from the immediate service of his God, I am doing a great work so that I cannot come down. And does not the building of the spiritual temple require the same concentrated devotedness of heart, the same sense of primary obligation? And are we, in a similar spirit, ready to answer the suggestions of a corrupt heart, of pride, indolence, love of ease, worldliness, and unbelief? I may not, I must not, I dare not, I cannot come down. In the true spirit of our work, we shall let the potsherds strive with the potsherds of the earth. Yea, even let the dead bury their dead. Rather than allow the business of this life to detain us from the present and imperative duty, go thou and preach the gospel of God. Bishop Burnett adverts to, quote, The great notion of the pastoral care which runs through our ordination service that it is to be a man's entire business, and is to possess both his thoughts and his time. What greater force or energy, the bishop asks, could be put in words than in these? Or where could any be found that are more weighty and more express to show the entire dedication of the whole man, of his time and labor, and the separating himself from all other cares to follow this one thing with all possible application and zeal. There is nothing in any office, ancient or modern, that I ever saw which is of this force so serious and so solemn. Quote. The clergy, quote, have a double account to settle, an account with God as well as an account with man. And it may happen that although the latter party have nothing to object against them, yet their functions may not have been adequately discharged in the sight of the great high priest of the church. Even if their engagement be not exactly in the nature of a conditional contract, as far as man is concerned, yet there are certain extra-official obligations, certain undefined though not less binding duties, which every man set apart for the ministry has undertaken to fulfill. His work must not be looked upon as an ordinary profession to be conducted on that principle of reciprocity which governs the common dealings of mankind. He desecrates his high calling when he considers it in the light of a mere commercial transaction in which a bargain is struck for a certain return of services upon the payment of a certain price. Like his heavenly pattern, he will be constantly about his master's business. He will avail himself of times and seasons and topics, and present the truths of which he is the depository, in so judicious and pertinent a manner, that his speech may at all times be seasoned with salt, and that no man may be able to accuse him of neglect, or inquire like Esau, in the tone of mingled regret and reproach, Hast thou not a blessing for me also? Our heavenly pattern did indeed furnish a striking illustration of the true spirit of the Christian ministry, doing with our might. His whole soul was in it, intent upon one thing, subordinating relative obligations, personal convenience, and even present necessity to the main business. No time was wasted upon trifles. Such unblushing activity. Never was an opportunity of usefulness lost. Even the common courtesies of life, public occasions, were improved as vehicles of the most important instruction. The thought of relinquishing his work was intolerable. Through most striking reproach and tribulation, he persevered to the end. The labors of single days were unprecedented in ministerial annals, and a lengthened course was compressed within the contracted space of three years. In a large measure of the same spirit did the great apostle follow his blessed exemplar. His very soul and spirit were set upon his work. Never did any hireling long for preferment, as did he to be made the organ of spiritual blessings to the church. He had a heart and tongue to speak, wherever there was an ear to hear, even at Rome itself. His account of one of his courses informs us that he commended his work the very first day he came into Asia, publicly and from house to house, declaring the whole counsel of God keeping back nothing that was profitable, warning everyone, night and day for three years, outwardly exposed to the temptations of his enemies, and inwardly pressed in his spirit by a tenderness, fervor, and compassion, which could find no vent but in tears, and determined at whatever cost to pursue his course with undaunted perseverance." Thus could he testify, God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son. And might we not ask, is God our witness? Does he mark in us, we say not any particular frequency of preaching, but the purpose, frame of heart, and stamp of a faithful ministration of the word, the spirit of a pastor after God's own heart, A devoted minister feels that there is sufficient employment for his whole life in his work, that so far as he lives in the spirit of it, it is his highest pleasure, and that he can never rightly perform its duties except he be wholly given to it. He will, therefore, find time for nothing but what is more or less connected with this main end— The want of divine influence on our work should therefore suggest a close and searching scrutiny. Is the whole heart, in singleness of purpose, consecrated to the Christian ministry? Mr. Brown's deathbed was given a most encouraging testimony on this subject, the result of 40 years' experience. Quote, Oh, labor, labor, said he to his sons, to win souls to Christ. I will say this for your encouragement. When the Lord led me out to be most earnest in this way, he poured in me most comfort into my own heart, so that he gave me my reward in my bosom. Quote. To the same purport was the earnest exhortation of the excellent Bishop Beveridge. Quote, As for those who come to take upon them the office of deacon or priest in the Church of Christ, let me now beseech them in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, whose servants they are now to be, that from this day forward they look upon him as their great master, and lay out themselves wholly in the service to which he calls them. And whatsoever difficulties they meet with in it, let them follow the apostle's example. Faint not, nor be discouraged, but go on with cheerfulness and alacrity, As remembering that they serve the best master in the world, one that will not only stand by them and assist them, but reward them at last with a crown of righteousness. Chapter 2 Conformity to the World. As members of society, some intercourse with the world is a matter of necessity, or we must needs go out of the world. Some measure of communication is also indispensable for the due discharge of our ministerial responsibilities. It is, however, most important to ascertain the scriptural limits and principles of this intercourse, lest we deviate from our Divine Master's rule, transgress its requirements, lower its standard, or substitute other principles in the regulation of our conduct. Now, if the prohibition of conformity to the world and the call of God to come out and be separate have any meaning at all, they must be supposed to warn the minister of the sanctuary from the sports of the field or the chase, from the theater, the ballroom, the card table, and the race course. And from that unprofitable, sensual life of folly, which unconsciously hurries us on from social intercourse, to the ensnaring pleasures of sin quote, A life in which the love of the world is predominant is incompatible with that dignified and edifying piety which should be the distinguishing characteristic of the sacred ministry. It is the spirit of piety alone that can ensure to us utility End quote. Massillon. For what aptness to teach can be exercised or nourished where the taste, time, talents, and activity are devoted to secular and self-indulgent engagements? Many shades of worldly conformity, most detrimental to our spiritual influence, attach themselves peculiarly to the clergy of the establishment. Their rank in society, their education, their mode of living— and the necessity which is commonly felt for keeping up appearances, all are circumstances which need the control of a heavenly and mortified mind, lest they should prove offenses in our great work. Perhaps few of us are aware of the keen eye with which our dress, furniture, tables, and household are scrutinized, and the minuteness of comparison instituted between our ministration and personal habits. Mr. Scott's observations upon this subject are entitled to great consideration. After remarking upon the inconveniences and temptations of ministers indulging an affectation of appearance beyond their legitimate station, he adds, If we form our judgment on this subject from the Holy Scripture... We shall not think of finding the true ministers of Christ among the higher classes of society in matters of external appearances or indulgence. If a minister thinks that the attention of the great and noble requires him to copy their expensive style of living, he grievously mistakes the matter. For this will generally forfeit the opinion before entertained of his good sense in regard to propriety, and his official declarations concerning the vanity of earthly things and the Christians' indifference to them will be suspected of insincerity. While it is observed that he conforms to the world as far or even further than his circumstances will admit, and thus respect will often be changed into disgust. Quote. At a later period of life, he writes thus, quote, I am sorry to say that worldly prudence and the desire of making provision for families, not only for necessary things, but for gentility and affluence, is, in my opinion, eating up the life of spirituality and simple trust in the Lord, even among those who preach scriptural doctrines. I believe these are clogged in their ministry "...nay, sink in general estimation and are excluded from usefulness more than they are aware of." Admitting even that our income allows this indulgence of expensiveness, yet is it not a point of Christian forbearance to refrain? Is it not most important to show that our heart is not set upon these things, that Christian plainness and simplicity are our deliberate choice, and that it is a matter of conscience and of privilege to devote to the service of God the expenditure that might have been wasted upon sealed houses or other useless decorations. Social intercourse with our neighborhoods often presents serious hindrance to our work. Not that religion inculcates any breach of good breeding, habits of moroseness, or declaiming with contemptuous severity against the follies of the world. This is neither the spirit of the gospel of love, nor the spirit that should distinguish its professors and, much less, its ministers. And what is said or done in this temper had far better have been forborne than exhibited in a garb of such unkindly roughness. Courtesy is an obligation, fully consistent with the exercise of Christian faithfulness, and, under decided scriptural restraint, often melts down prejudice and conciliates goodwill. But, latet anguis in erba. The double guard of watchfulness and prayer is most needful to preserve the single eye and the heart devoted in simplicity to God. It is enchanted ground. A prudent Christian dares not walk on it without a special call. The late excellent Mr Hervey resolved, quote, never to go into any company where he could not obtain access for his master. End quote. And at least we should determine to venture into no society but where we sincerely desire and endeavor to introduce our master. There is indeed a time for keeping silence, and keeping our mouth with a bridle, in the presence of the ungodly, lest by giving that which is holy unto dogs, and casting our pearls before swine, we should provoke a needless excitement of enmity against the gospel. But, as Dr. Watts has well observed, I doubt this caution has been carried much further by our own cowardice and carnality of spirit, than David ever practised in the thirty-ninth psalm, or than Jesus Christ meant it in the seventh of Matthew, End quote. certainly, if we are dumb with silence and hold our peace even from good, without feeling like David under these circumstances, our sorrows to be stirred. It is but too plain that we have lost that distinction of the servants of Christ which it would have been our honour to have preserved that our Christian prudence has degenerated into worldly cowardice, and that our conversation with the world has been regulated by the fear of man, fleshly indulgence, and practical unbelief of the most solemn warnings of the gospel. Our Divine Master never intended that we should confine our religion to the services of the sanctuary. As men of God, we should have it at heart and in hand, spreading a spiritual savor over the common walks of society and stamping us with the mark of confessors of Christ in the midst of a world who hold him still in the same contempt as when eighteen centuries since they nailed him to the cross. There must be some defect if we do not bring an atmosphere with us which is more or less instantaneously felt. It is the want of this high tone of character, that makes our private ministration so pointless and ineffective. For when parochial visits have been unaccompanied with one searching inquiry respecting the state of the soul, it is easily supposed that as no suspicion was thrown out, none was entertained. And that, if there was not quite so much religion as with some others yet that there was no ground for alarm, nor had the solemn statements of the pulpit any specific reference to them. The importance of studying urbanity of behavior in our intercourse with the world is sometimes pleaded as an excuse for avoiding the direct offense of the cross. But let it be remembered that God never honors a compromising spirit. The character of our profession with the world must not be merely negative. It must be marked by a wise, tender, but unflinching exhibition of the broad line of demarcation, which under the most favorable circumstances of mutual accommodation still separates the world and the church from real communion with each other. Did the apostle mean by that emphatic term, the course of this world, no more than the round of giddy dissipation or vicious pleasure. Had this prohibition of worldly conformity no regard to the principles, the standard, the taste, the external decency of worldliness? Does not his warning against even contact with the world, deduced from the reason and fitness of things, as well as from the express declaration of God, directly apply to all the sources of interest, the fellowship, the habit of mind and conversation, which by the scriptural standard are proved to be not of the Father but of the world? Or will an evangelical accuracy of doctrine and correctness of outward deportment be sufficient to stamp our profession with the broad seal of conformity to our Master's image? They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Quote, Doubtless, as Archbishop Secker reminds us, we should endeavor to make religion agreeable, but not to make ourselves agreeable by leading our company to forget religion. We should, every one of us, please his neighbor for his good, but not so please men as to fail in the character of servants of Christ. End quote. We should be made in a fitting sense and measure all things to all men, that we may by all means save some, but we shall lose ourselves, not save others, if we are quite different persons in the pulpit and out of it. These admirable sentiments fix the precise character and scriptural limits of Christian courtesy. Bounding it by the line of Christian edification and distinguishing it by an entire disregard of our own interest and a single devotedness to the main object of the salvation of immortal souls. Indeed, a successful attempt to ingratiate ourselves with the world should rather afford matter for godly jealousy than anticipation of advantage. To have attached the world by adventitious accomplishments to ourselves, while the Master, whom we profess to venerate, is still with them a despised and rejected Saviour, to a mind reflecting upon Scripture principles is a matter of far greater alarm than of self complacency. If they could not endure the conciliating attractiveness of the Son of God, even whilst devoting himself to their service at an infinite cost to himself, If they could count the great apostle, endued with so large a portion of his master's loveliness of deportment, as the filth of the earth and the off-scouring of all things, they can only court our society upon the perception that we approximate to their own standard rather than to these heavenly models. Sometimes, however, this ministerial association with the world is justified upon principle, it is said to operate as a restraint upon unbecoming conversation or dissipated recreation. It is even conceived to promise positive advantage in recommending religion to more general acceptance. Yet, surely the transgression of a plain command, having a primary reference to ministers, can be nothing less than willful sin, while the motive pleaded in its extenuation marks the character of the sin doing evil that good may come. The best intention motives can never justify the infringement of a divine obligation, even if, what in the present case is contrary to fact and experience, the prospect of eventual benefit were both assured and satisfactory. But who does not know that the awe and restraint of our presence cannot reach to the root of the evil? "...its temporary and inefficient influence, therefore, has been dearly purchased by a lowering of the tone of the ministerial character, by a yielding conformity to the taste, habits, and conversation of the world, and by a virtual sanction of an erroneous standard of conduct." Would the Levitical high priests have descended from their sacred elevation of immediate intercourse with God to participate in the frivolities even of decorous worldliness? And why should we, under a more spiritual dispensation, be less separate or our standard less heavenly? If indeed this connection with the world should recommend us to their kindly consideration, yet no additional regard to our master accrues from it, since we have usually been unable to mention his name with any glow of interest, nor has any feature of his holy image been illustrated or embodied in the spirituality of our conversation. It is a lowering indeed that our divine master occasionally associated with men decidedly adverse to his doctrine, but he could breathe a polluted atmosphere with perfect security and therefore might venture where common prudence would forbid those to follow whose constitutions are predisposed to contagion. Besides, his intercourse with the world was uniformly that of an instructor, not of a conformist. And he accomplished his important designs not by accommodating his conversational subjects to their taste, except indeed when illustrating his instructions from the topics and circumstances of the day, but by chaining down their wondering attention to the gracious words which proceeded out of his mouth. But is our intercourse with the world thus conformed to our master's pattern? Are we ready to do quote, the hard and rough work of bringing God into his own world? End quote? Cecil. Or are we not too easily satisfied with the influence of outward restraints, while no plain testimony has been delivered for him whose we are and whom we profess to serve? It has been justly remarked that, quote, a worldly state of mind is not less destructive of true holiness than gross sin, end quote, Bishop Taylor. The example of Demas, the fellow laborer of the Apostle, stands as a beacon at the close of the ministerial epistles to remind us, even while invigorated by the glorious prospects of eternity, of the need of watchful carefulness against this baneful snare of our ministry. Upon the full consideration of the subject, the writer is constrained to express his decided conviction that a very large proportion of our inefficiency may be traced to the source of worldly conformity. This needs no proof in the too frequent cases of decided love of pleasure and dissipation. Quote, for, as Massillon asks his clergy, after having fully mixed in the diversions and follies of the world, can you appear in a Christian pulpit, impressed with a sense of the importance of the gospel and zealous for its success? Of such ministers we would speak even weeping, that they are the sores of the church "...that they have given more strength to the cause of separation than the most powerful objections either to our established formularies or government, and, what is far more fearful, that they are charged with the awful responsibility of dragging with them immortal souls down to perdition by their negligence or by the positive influence of their example." But is not also the lax, indulgent approximation to the spirit of the world, either in our general habit and appearance or in our intercourse with the world, a leading, though not always a tangible, cause of failure? Even the faithful exhibition of the cross must be materially weakened by a want of the corresponding exhibition of its power in crucifying its ministers to the lusts and affections of the world. A connection with the world beyond the point of clear duty, or even within these narrow bounds, without a heavenly temper, must bring us into a worldly atmosphere which deadens the vigorous actings of a spiritual life, till, like the torpedo, we benumb everything we touch. Conscience in a tender and susceptible state might almost determine the question, what is the effect of such connections upon the spiritual frame? Has there not been in this atmosphere a closer communion with the world than with God? Has not the spirit of prayer been well-nigh extinguished and delight in the more spiritual exercises of our work fearfully lost? And does not our ministry thus become, perhaps unconsciously to ourselves, weak, general, and indefinite upon the main points of separation from the world? Or... Even if our exhortations reach the scriptural standard of decision, must not their power be wholly counteracted by this compromising spirit? Accurate and earnest statements of truth combined with sociable conformity to the world will give no offense and bring no conviction. Cooper's line, If parsons fiddle, why mayn't laymen dance? Has at least as much truth as wit in it. If we go one step into the world, our flock will take the sanction to go too. The third will be still more easy and the atmosphere more enticing, till at last it proves, as a bird hasteth to the snare, and knoweth not that it is for his life. Quote, The minister, therefore, who would not have his people give in to worldly conformity, such as he disapproves, must keep at a considerable distance himself. If he walks near the brink, others will fall down the precipice. End quote: Scott quote, "A preacher who enjoys the smiles of the world can hope for little success from God, but a minister of the church who is entirely disengaged from the love of earthly things is a great treasure and a great consolation to her." Kensel. This audio recording was read by Michael Ives. I hope you found it enlightening and edifying. Visit westportexperiment.com for more audio resources and where I write about parish missions, the care of souls, and all things reformed. Note, some references and citations were passed over for greater ease of listening. The listener is referred to the original to access them.